what that led to was a child who really struggled later with self-leadership. And that's when it, you know, no one really talked to me about this issue of self-leadership being a really critical element. They really said, you know, it's stylistically being an authoritative parent is not the best way to go. And I'm like, well, you know what style you could do one way, I'll do another way. I wasn't thinking strategically of what do I want this child to be? And what do I want the child to be is independent, self-leader, self-learner, self-governing, autonomous actor. And the more that I then led and required his submission to my leadership, the more I actually stunted his ability to self-lead. Hi, everyone. This is Ross, your host of Bear Crawl with Dads. So true confession, I'm completely leveraging this podcast for personal and selfish reasons. You see, not too long ago, I became a dad for the very first time, but with that, an older dad. So the one thing that I know so far is that this bear crawl as a dad is not meant to be done alone. We truly need each other. So may this podcast be that for you. So come along and let's bear crawl together. All right, you bear crawlers, thank you so much for joining episode number 18. And you know the show exists to uh, really encourage dads out there wherever you are. Uh, If you're an older dad, younger dad, just leveraging the show of how I can learn uh, myself as a new dad. So I am very honored to have as our next guest here on episode 18 in our infancy stage of the podcast uh, is Mr. Matt Barnes uh, here in Houston, Texas. Matt, welcome to, to Bear Crawls with Dads. Hey, how are you? Well, that's a loaded question, Matt, because um, I came with you to hear about your story. Okay. I want to ask like, about you. <laughs> well, I, and I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of going off script here a little bit, but how do you deal with a two-year-old who constantly says no? We're kind oh, of in that. Goodness. We're in that's that where you are? That's where I am. Okay. So I would start, <laughs> uh, I don't know if you're a wine drinker or a beer drinker, um, but I would throw all that out of the house because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> those kids will, they will make you drink. Uh, I'm writing down notes right now. Okay. No, seriously. We, we Bro. just had dinner. We had dinner <laughs> with a friend. He's got a seven month old and we actually had a conversation like this. So, you know, I, I'm at the age now where, you know, all the younger dads are coming up to me and saying, Hey, what did you do? And how do you do this? And, and thankfully our kids are kind of our best kind of, you know, ad for, for what we've done. Our kids are right. pretty amazing. So what would I do for a two-year-old? What did you say? It says no all the time. Is that what you said? Oh, that's his favorite word. It's, I tried to trick him the other day. I was like, you like popsicles? He's like, uh, yes. I was like, I gotcha. Yeah, that's a phase. And there's, there's kind of two schools of, of thought on this. And I, I'm not sure which is the right one. I'll just tell you what they are and which one I used. And, you know, it seemed to work. One school of thought is, you know, deal with it as a phase. And, you know, with time, he will grow out of it. The other school of thought is to set some boundaries around authority. And that's usually where I landed in the early years. I probably went too hard on the authority side. But the key, regardless of where you land, the key is to move towards a place where the young child is becoming a self-leader. And so I argue that at two, you don't want a, a child to say no because that's actually a safety issue. Get out of the street. No, that's a safety issue, right? Right. Uh, put, you know, don't touch that. No, that's a safety issue if it's a hot item. So I take a, you know, stance of, uh, of, of creating an authority responsibility. So how would I do in practice on something like that? 
it's been some years. My oldest is now 20. But what I recall doing was creating a consequence. And that consequence can range from the simple timeout to uh, we used to use sometimes the high chair as a timeout spot. Um, if they wouldn't respect our, you know, we'd sometimes have them sit on the stair. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're going to have a timeout here. We're going to set the timer for two minutes. And then we would go back, whatever you do, we would, we would go back to that spot where the infraction happened and I would do it again and practice and say, okay, we're going to practice how to respect my authority in the home. So, you know, whatever the, you know, um, pick up your shoes. If he says no, okay, we're going to have a short timeout for you to remind you who's in charge here. And then we'll come back and practice it again. And I wouldn't move the shoes. I would wait for him to come back. And if he says no again, I'd go back to the high chair, you know, strap him in, say you got two minutes or, uh, you know, go sit on the um, stair for two minutes. Mm-hmm. But these are these are real hard conversations because they also really require an agreement between the parent, uh, the dad and the mom. How are right. you? Uh, right. I won't, I won't get into your business, but uh, if you <laughs> okay. and your mom are not on the, you and your wife are not on the same page, that creates tension Right. And confusion in the mind of the child because mom will say one thing, dad will say something else. That's That really is the biggest issue. You got to be on the same page. Yeah. Well, we're going deep early, but I love it because uh, I want the audience to know who you are, uh, the yeah. sage. Um, but but it's funny because you mentioned that because we, my wife and I are, are lock stock. I got you. You got me. But the other day when it came to like a little bit of some screen time, which we allow a little bit of it. Um, it was a beautiful day. It was after dinner. It's like, no, we need to go outside and enjoy the day. And she's like, but I told him it was okay to have some screen time. So later we kind of had to come back as a couple, a united front and say, okay, sorry about that. You know, so we just, mm-hmm. we, we had to kind of have a little place of reconnection. So that way we were a unified, you know, front. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. That's huge. And frankly, you know, when I talk to parents, that's one of the biggest things I actually lead with whatever your approach, whether you're, you know, on the permissive side or the authoritarian side, you've got to be in the same lockstep with your wife. And this also will change over the years. Actually, frankly, like monthly, given you know your child is two, next month he'll be doing something different and you got to get on the same page. And so the regularity of conversation between you and your wife around what's happening with a child and how we're going to work on that together, that is more important than any one style or approach that I think I could offer. That is awesome. Now we can read it in the podcast right there. I think that's the yeah, dude. <laughs> we, we made it a short. <laughs> yes, we did. Thank you. You're welcome, audience. But Matt, so on your LinkedIn, education yeah. is 90% parent behavior. Learning is 100% child desire. Your mm-hmm. experience is all over. It's amazing. Co-founder of a Youth Entrepreneur Award, co-founder and parent coach of the education game. Mm-hmm. It, it's amazing your background. So tell the audience. I though, can't keep a job. Teach me your, <laughs> teach me your secrets. That's going to be uh, on the B side of this. But tell the audience who Matt Barnes is. Like, are you married? Yeah. Kids? What's Yeah. You? I'll get into it. Sure. I'm, I'm a dad. I've got uh, three kids, uh, ages 2018. She'll be 19 next week and 17. I'm a husband between almost 25 years. 24 years. Yeah, it's been tough, and mm. but we've 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 stuck it out, and and we're we love each other dearly. I am a son of the Most High, um, yeah. Jesus Christ. Um, I'm also a son of a broken dad, just like me, and a broken mom. Who both of them are are humans, and so they had their own you know failings, but they did their very best. And that's mm-hmm. one thing that when I think about me, I think about I want to be the best parent I can possibly be. 
for my child, mm. knowing full well that I'm going to fail, I'm going to screw up, I'm going to mess up a lot, and I certainly have. But that is actually the drive for me, that the idea that God gave me these three kids to shepherd to adulthood. Mm. So many people have poured into me over these years, and I've got three kids that I are, that are truly amazing. I now pour into other parents who ask so that they can have some of the wisdom that I've been able to benefit from over the last you know, 20 years of having kids. So that's what I do now. I work with parents. 90% of the child's education is parent influenced. And what I mean by that is it's not necessarily that the parent is homeschooling, although they may and we did, but every decision, particularly in the early years, is a parental decision, right? right? And how you handle the child saying no, what are you going to do? You know, what are they going to wear? What are they going to watch? How they're going to spend their time? These are, uh, these are parental decisions and they're weighty. So I teach, that's what I do. I coach parents on how to think about uh, educating their children. Yep. Well, Matt, thank you for that. And thank you for your investment, obviously in others and paid it forward, but I uh, can't, sounds like in not really knowing you, but what a, a, an example testimony you are and a gift to your three kids and to your wife because I hope so. just that foundation that's so rare these days. Um, and so your commitment to your kids, it's an amazing testimony to you, you. and, and to your you. wife. So thank you. And so you are, I would, you said a parent coach, life coach, is that fair? Okay. Yeah, just to clarify. Yeah. So life coach, not quite like that. I really am around the, the intersection between the parent, the child and education. That's gotcha. my sweet spot. Okay. And of course, just to be clear, that does bring you into a whole bunch of life consequences like finances matter a ton. You know, how the marriage relationship is managed, that matters a ton. So yeah, I get into a lot of topics, but fundamentally it's between the parent, the child, and and how we educate the child for a dynamic future. Well, and, and Matt, thank you for clarifying that because um, I don't misrepresent that. And also too, in the show notes, we'll have links uh, to you where uh, listeners sure. can find you if they have any questions so you can be a good resource for families. Um, with that being said, because I do want to get that down to the maybe towards the uh the middle towards the end of our show but just to hear about that your thoughts about the education and parents and mm. what does that look like uh, right now maybe that's a whole nother five-hour conversation uh, yeah how many hours <laughs> right yeah. right that's not fair <laughs> but let's strip it all down because maybe if we kind of go back to our past we can get a little window inside of your soul of your motivation but if you don't mind sharing with the audience what yeah. was it like with your, you referenced your mom and dad earlier, but what was that like in your relationship? I guess since obviously Bear Crawls, you know, with dads is for dads, generally, yeah. courage. But what was it like, the relationship with your father growing sure. up? Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm African-American. You, you may not be able to tell from audio. I can uh, change my <laughs> my speech patterns if that <laughs> makes it more obvious. But as an African-American male growing up in St. Louis, actually in just outside of Ferguson, uh -huh. Which, for those that may be aware of the some of the mm -hmm. kind of the early parts of the kind of Black Lives Matter and, mm -hmm. and black consequences and, and conflict with uh, with police, that mm -hmm. that was very close to where I grew up. And uh, growing up in the seventies and eighties, race was just it was always it was always in the room. You know, my dad was a cop, and mm -hmm. so he saw the realities of policing. And he also was extraordinarily assertive to make sure that, um, that I didn't go that direction or any of, any of his, any of his boys. He, we had, had to have two other, other brothers and both oh. are doing well. Okay. My mom's a teacher. She was the daughter of a teacher 
and she's the granddaughter of a teacher and the grand grand what niece of a, of a man who formed a historically black college and university in Jackson, Tennessee called Lane College. And so education was all in her family. Wow. Yeah. And so it's some kind of ironic that now years after, you know, not doing anything really formally in education, I'm, I'm working with parents around education. But like the formative elements of this was that growing up where I grew up and how I grew up, if it were not for my parents, I would not be talking with you right now. There's all sorts of very close calls that um, they helped to shield me from and to shepherd me through. Uh-huh. And, you know, a lot of kids nowadays do not have that depth of resource, parental resource. And so uh, that's absolutely a, a space where I feel compelled and called to do what I can to help young people and their parents really uh, guide their, their their journey. That's what, that's what I do. I don't know if that's enough background, but- uh, no. Yeah. No, that, I, that, that's fascinating. That's fascinating as far as the legacy of your mom and the and mm. the, that lineage of educators. Yeah, um, that's amazing. And just what that says about that side of your family of giving back and of caring and and, and trying to change the next generation. So, what a kind of a living legacy, I guess, sounds like you are uh, with with the, that side of education, and also your father um, again giving back to the community. So, there sounds like there's this really giving back to the community, fighting for the good of others. Yeah, um, I guess that's right. To some degree, it, at least <laughs> what I'm hearing. Um, yeah, it sounds more noble when you say it. At the time, it was really just kind of, you know, getting by and living life. Sure. Um, but there, I'll say this, though. There's a couple points that you're kind of reminding me about, which is, you know, my dad, his dad wasn't around. Long story about that. His dad never played a role in his life. My dad did not know what the heck he was doing, he, but he did the very best he could. Mm. And every dad who might be listening to this show, I hope you recognize that you are going to screw up mm-hmm. and it's okay. Mm-hmm. Do the very best you can, err on the side of protection, support, leadership of your family, and you're going to be okay. Your kids are going to be okay. Do not subscribe to the kind of fear mongering that's out there around the lives of, of our boys. You, if you're there and you're present and you're leading and loving your your kids are going to be okay it's kind of that simple i got you well and with that though man i'm going to might be kind of like rabbit trailing all over when he is it is it in, with your experience to say like with your father and you as a father acknowledging that we're not perfect and i think sometimes you know now that i'm older and you see your parents for who they are yeah you know right that when you're I'm younger my dad is my hero my dad can do no wrong and but now that I'm an adult and now that I'm a father, I'm like, okay, my dad wasn't perfect, and he, but he was doing the best that he could. Speaking and of that generation of we work to show our love, mm-hmm. um, I'm providing mm-hmm. for my family, you're right? And so, and I want to fix things. So here's yep. my problem, dad. Okay, well, let's fix it, right? But when is it or is it okay for a father to say, hey, son, daughter, I messed up. How vulnerable do you get with your children? When is it okay? When is it not okay? Is that a fair question? Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think it is a, I think it's a great question. I think a lot of dads struggle with this. I know I did. I think transparency is the term that I would use. You obviously want to be careful about being overly transparent, right? Your kid doesn't need to know that you're struggling with your marriage, right? Your kid doesn't need to know, mm-hmm. uh, at least early on, that, you know, finances are tough. You don't want the child to learn to live in fear. At the same time, a lot of how we structure our lives and our edu- in particular our educational lives of our children shape, profoundly shape 
how the child will view their own life as a parent. And so I think what I would say to this is being transparent around the questions that you as a parent are having, you don't have all the answers and that's okay. Being clear with the child, hey, you know what? I think this is the right path. I think this is what I would do. What do you think? Is a way to start to share authority where that you're, you're helping the child learn how to self-lead. Here's the error that a lot of parents, myself included, made and make often. It's trying to be right all the time. Mm-hmm. And so this issue of transparency is a recognition that I don't know the answer. And we, you know, as again, as a Christian guy, I don't want to ever presume that I know exactly God's intention. Mm-hmm. At best, at best, I can have a sense of where God, I feel, is leading us. But I want to bring the child into that conversation as well. So I can say, Ch- child, here's what I'm thinking. What about you? What is God saying to you about the direction and the choices you make? I don't know. I'm struggling myself. But what do you think? And that begins a, a really interesting shift in the relationship where, again, the young person begins to realize they can contribute to their own leadership. They can look to the, the dad as an advisor, mm-hmm. not necessarily as the authority and the decision maker on all things. Those are really tricky transition points, but every parent I talk to wants the same thing for their child. And fundamentally, they want the child to be able to enter into adulthood fully prepared, grounded, and excited about the future. That's going to require that the young person learns how to manage themselves without the parent being there. And that's part of this process of education that I think a lot of parents, um, they, they, they get wrong. I'll just say it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And, and I guess it's like, what age is, and maybe it's just the development of that specific child as far as the maturity level, but at what point do you start mm-hmm. to let the transition period, like say with your children, yeah. like they are of that mindset now of where I, there can be a little bit more of a collaborative. What do you think? I guess more in their abstract thinking as opposed to- Yeah. Right? So the great, great question. You're obviously uh, preparing your child and your, your family life for, uh, for kids. Like, so that's a question that is the right question to ask. Here's how I answer it. It's not precise. There's no age. It's definitely developmental. But think about it this way. When the child is born, the parent literally has 100% authority over everything that happens to that child, right? 100%. Mm-hmm. Decide when to, when, you know, if they're going to get their diaper changed, they decide when they're going to be put down to bed, what they're going to eat, when they're going to eat. All those things are parentally led. So the child is really at zero in terms of their authority. Mm-hmm. Now, the aim is by the time the child is maybe 13 or 14, mm-hmm. that child is now in the driver's seat solidly. And that's a big change. We tend to think of by the time the child's 18 or 22, that is when we want the child to be able to lead themselves. No. Historically speaking, in almost every culture on earth, 13 was the point at which the child became the authority for their own life. That doesn't mean they had 100% authority, but they had 51%. So between the child's birth, when the parent is at 100 and the child is at zero, and around 13, where the child now is at 51% or higher and the parent is at 49% or lower, that is the transition we're moving towards. I encourage parents really to think about this as a transition that starts when the when the period is born and it continues all the way down through the point at which the child is able to you know set off on their own. 
whether it's college or on a job or getting an apartment because they can pay for it themselves. But that is the aim that we are launching kids as arrows in a quiver. You're trying to launch the arrow. You don't want to keep the arrow in the quiver. You want the arrow to be outside of your control. And so that does that help a little bit with just the transition point around that? Right. Right. It it does. It does. Now, you mentioned 13, right? Yeah. So 18 is when you want the arrow to be released and for someone to be independent, yeah. self-sustaining. So that's trickier. So I, I don't, I can't say an exact date. All I know is that I have met kids that at age eight and nine are at 51% and they're managing themselves very, very well. I've also met kids who are 24 and 25 who aren't. And so what I've seen is the difference between the two is the intentionality of the parent to actually wean the child off of the parental teat. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> what I was just going to say. I was just right? going to say the, the teat. And I think too, because I, I feel like, and, and this is, I, I, again, I'm all over the board with you, which I love. No problem. But I'm fascinated by rites of passage. I'm mm, fascinated by yeah, that matters. what do families, individual families do Yes. Your family, at what age do you, as your family, say, at this age, either dad is going to take my daughter out on a weekend to show you, hey, this is how you should be treated. I'm raised in the bar or young man, we're going to go on a trip, whatever, and tell you about the birds and the bees. You know, I'll see in the Jewish traditions with the bat mitzvah and the bar mitzvah. Exactly. I'm fascinated by that. Grew up in New yep. Orleans. Um, I have so many friends um, that are Jewish and so many friends that are Catholic, but I, I went to so many Jewish feasts and, and fascinated by that. But really in that tradition, at this age, we are recognizing that you now can take the Torah and you are now responsible for yes. your faith that we as a family are kind of backing off a little bit, but it's odd to me because you can't vote, you can't drive, you can't drink, you know, until you're 18. Yeah. So why yeah. is it that 13 of age? But I am fascinated by, and there's a book that I have referenced a lot, Raising a Modern Day Night. Yep. It is in that Christian to be fully transparent, but kind of in those, the steps of becoming a knight. And you, let's say you're, the boy is 13 and you're surrounded by not only your father, but a group of men. And yes. to say that we see value in you, we, you've got what it takes, but also too, we're going to hold you to a standard. And there's a, a, a brethren, if you will, that's going to keep you honest, you know? So what are your thoughts on that? Piggybacking oh on what you're saying. So much there. So much there. Yes. So dad's particularly dads with young kids, this is what you're aiming towards. It doesn't have to be 13. That's that's definitely historically, you know, in the Judeo-Christian, you know, space. Right. It doesn't have to be that age. It could be earlier, but it, it really has to be an intentional, that it, and it's not 18. 18 is way too late. Think about this. Yes. 200 years ago, an 18-year-old would have a household. They would probably have two, maybe three kids at that moment. Uh, they would know how to handle everything on a farm. They would be fully independent and fully operational. Now we look at an 18 year old and we're happy if they get B's in, mm. in school. Uh -huh. We have lowered the bar for what a young, particularly young male is as a, as a young male. And so there's a cultural definition of manhood. And we, I just argue we should just throw that away <laughs> and okay. go strictly to kind of a spiritual definition of manhood. And that is a young man who's able and uh, and capable of managing themselves, of managing their own spiritual and faith walk, whatever that may be. 
managing a relationship with a young woman. And those are things then that if really we're looking at 13 as that transition point, then really we need to be having a lot more conversations when the child is eight and nine and 10. I would not leave birds and the beads to one conversation at 13. I would be talking about it slowly over the course of years because they're going to get it from culture. They're going to get all this information from culture and all of it is going to be garbage. So I'll tell you, I get my kid was in a, um, a small Christian hybrid, hybrid school, which was like a two-day week school. We homeschooled the other times, but I was shocked that at age eight, he was being, you know, conversations that were happening in classroom around sexuality and homosexuality and, you know, all sorts of things that were coming you know, around him. And he wasn't prepared because I hadn't prepared him early enough. So what I usually say to parents around these questions of how do you prepare a child for adulthood is you think about when you should tell them inside of these conversations and then you back it up a couple of years because you're going to always be too late <laughs> in our yeah. culture now, you know, drugs, sex, like all the vices, like those things are coming at kids full force early, particularly kids who have access to technology. So if that's the case, then you got to get ahead of it as a, as a parent's got to be very intentional. And then as far as the rites of passage, mm -hmm. I think that's hugely valuable, not as much for the child, I want you to hear me on this, but for the parents and the adults around that child. At that moment, those adults have to start treating the child differently. They have to have a higher standard for that child. What I have seen is that unfortunately, Ross, mm -hmm. a lot of these parents and adults will look at a 13 or 14 or 15 year old young man and look at him like a child mm. and they will treat him with low standards. They, if the child is late for an event, they'll say, oh, it's okay. He's just 14. Or if the child is, you know, non-communicative or doesn't handshake well, doesn't look in the eye, that's ah, okay. He's only 14. We got to be very careful about that because what we're doing is we're lowering the standard and that's exactly the opposite of where our young men need to be. And it's got to be something that dads are super, super intentional about. So rites of passage, yes, for the child, but also for the adults around that child. That, yeah, that's fascinating because I didn't think about that twist as far as more for the adults, you know, the power of the ceremony that could be more meaningful to the adults of that child's life. But do you feel like that maybe what you just said is more of an indictment on parents of not necessarily stepping up? for their children because they're walking from their wounds from their yeah from yeah. their broke from their brokenness because i do feel like we're all kind of walking wounded from our middle school years and we're still some of, we're still kind of playing those roles <laughs> that we played in middle school like if i'm the jokester that's kind of how i got through middle school <laughs> and it's still the mask that i'm wearing now because it got me through and so do you see a lot of that with parents like man you need some help you need some counseling Does that make yeah sense? Well, yeah, absolutely. One of the guys I used to do some work with, he had a quote that said, um, youth work is adult work. Yeah. You can't work with youth without really focusing on the adults around that youth. And there's where I'm, again, that's why I work on this intersection between the parent and the child and, and education, because if the parent is broken, he's going to break the child. And, and again, I can point to my own examples, happy to talk about some of them, of where I failed in a monumental way. And only, only looking backwards can I say, oh, this is what led up to that. Okay, let me make sure dads are watching out for that mm -hmm. error because it mm -hmm. was a common error and one that I fell into. But here's the big key, Ross, culture. We live in a culture that is 
caustic. It is teaching young people like many of the very wrong things. And I'm not talking about the culture wars. I'm just talking about basic human decency, right? Being kind to other people. Like mm-hmm. go on TikTok for a bit and and just kind of sc- you know scroll for a while and you will see so many shows about people hurting themselves and people being embarrassed and people being, you know, injured in some way. And it's made to be funny. That is a decency problem. You also will see a lot of stuff. And you, of course, you probably see this in the news media, but we are believing that some people are good and other people are bad. That's not human decency. So a good chunk of what we're battling is a culture that is messaging to the messaging to the child. You're good. Everyone else is bad. Or those people are bad, whatever those people, you know, is, uh-huh. um, these people are good. And you as the parent have got to get in and search yourself between those two and say, okay, the world says that this is how we should think, but here's how we do it at our house. We mm-hmm. love people, mm-hmm. even if they don't believe what we believe, even if they don't dress like we dress, even if they don't speak like we speak, we love them because we're called to do that. And frankly, that's how we do it as Barnes family. That's what we do. And so these are the messages of like how you have to inculcate a vision of who you want your child to be, who's the child you want to give to the world. And that's got to start radically early because again, the culture is going to keep messaging to that child uh, a very different vision than what you would likely come up with yourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, you know, you hear the, it's the adage that we hear over and over again, but it's like, you better act before you preach or what you, your words yeah. better match how you live. And, and I feel like working in the world of education for so long now, kids are perceptive. Kids can, oh my kids can, even my first graders, my kindergartners. And so they you know. better be, you better be walking the talk. Yep. And they better know that you've got their hearts. Cause if, if they, if you don't, then they know, they know. Yeah, and I feel like too, you know, and I'm also taught, I want to encourage and whatever words you may have to the single parents out there mm. um, that are just working a job, two jobs. They're like, I can't keep up. I can't keep up. I'm yeah. trying because yeah. my heart goes out to them as well. Yeah. You know, Ross, a lot of my work is actually aimed at single parents and, mm. and parents of color and parents, frankly, my, my target, if I could, it's hard to reach them, but my target is actually single parents, parents of color and low income parents. Okay. Because all the systems of our society are not built for them, frustrates the heck out of them. Mm-hmm. So for the single parents, you've got to be so incredibly strategic, more so than a you know two-parent household. And part of the strategy here is you've got to create what I call your assistant coaching team. So you as the head coach, as the parent, single parent, you now need an assistant coach in charge of, if you've got a, let's say you've got a son and you're a single mom, you need an assistant coach in, in charge of messaging what it means to be a male. And so what I would argue is that in your church community, oftentimes, or your synagogue or your social club, whatever the community is, you as a single mom, you're trying to identify men that you want your child to be around. Mm-hmm. And you will be highly intentional about approaching that man and saying, listen, I really like how you operate. Would you be willing to take my son out for breakfast once a month, once every other week, something like that, and just talk to him? I just want to build a relationship between you and my son. I don't don't use the word mentor because mentor scares people. Just say, I want you to build a relationship between you and my son. I'd like you and I would like my boy to be like you. That is usually enough for most men to go, man, gosh, I'm, I'd be honored. I'd be honored to take your son. And so, so again, the parent is now intentionally creating a touch point, a hedge of protection 
that starts with this one man. It can, it will, there's others that you want to bring into this fold, but it, it, that's the, that's the kind of support that a single mom has to now be really, really strategic about. And frankly, you need to be strategic about it as well, Ross, uh, whether you have a single mom or a, you know, a dual player household, you have to create a community of support that's beyond the parent, that child. And if I've seen it, I didn't think it would happen to me because I was so intentional with my parents. I, I thought my kids would always come to me for yeah. questions, uh-huh. but they'd stop at some point. I want to make sure that they have relationships with people who I would consider the language I would use is godly, but it could be re- responsible or respectful, whatever the languages you use, intentionally build that relationship so that when that child is questioning things, is unsure about how to go and they don't feel like they can talk to you or, they, or you're not available, they've got, they've got somebody in their network. And I love that because it really, again, it takes a village and it's being intentional and being really self-aware, if that's fair, to yeah. say, if you're a single parent out there to say, look, you know, this isn't ideal, but I've got to make the most of it. And I've got to yeah. be intentional about either my community of faith or whatever that is. Like you're saying, be proactive to have people speak into your child's life. You know, and also to think, I don't know, you know, I think it's fascinating the relationships with a, a son to his mother, a son to his dad, and a daughter to his mother, daughter to his dad. I think those roles kind of Tell me from, but, but there's seasons where a dad can needs to step in and a mom yes. needs to kind of step in, right? But also too, but it's like, I think maybe, I don't know, the development being that I'm a male, you know, where you kind of idolize your dad, but then there's that natural tension with your yes. dad. Cause like, I want to be my own man and yes. okay, I hear what you're saying, but screw that because it's, you're my dad. And so I, there were some men, my youth minister at First New Orleans, who I looked up to. He wasn't my dad. He had to speak to me several times, but I, but I, but I had some of those guys outside of my dad, kind of like you're saying, that were able to step in that I could listen to when I wasn't, quote, listening to my dad, because maybe that natural tension you know that you have with your father. Hugely I, important. Yeah. Hugely important. And it's also, Ross, it's also, we're, we're really isolated in ways that we weren't just a generation or two ago. And so when I'm talking about this being intentional, it's because most of the parents I talk to and work with, when I say, all right, who are the five people who you have that that are that you're relationally close with that you think you can bring into a tighter fold, they can walk along with your child. Most of the time, parents will say, I don't have anybody. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and that's really risky because now it's a one-on-one parent-child and the world against you. And that doesn't work very well. So building these networks of other, again, I I use the language of assistant coaches, Mm. other adults, and actually young men and women who are just a little bit older, maybe five or six or 10 years older. It's amazing how a 13-year-old boy looks up to a 23-year-old boy. It's amazing. So being really clear about, okay, hey, this is the young man I want my child to start to emulate. And I'm going to now facilitate that relationship. Hugely valuable. One of the places that I did, I didn't do it nearly enough as what I should have. Man, it's like, it's just, it's such a, these are such good conversations too, because it's like, I feel like the attack on men or, or fathers out there in Mm. general, if they're not feeling worthy or they've made mistakes and whatever that may be and just, you know, then, but how can I now be that for my child and, you know, just that cyclical approach you know um it's like how do you stop the bleeding and i think we are more and more as a culture you're seeing it more than i am probably is that 
how much we are alone and we don't yeah. have community. And not saying you have to go to a faith community, but I feel like places of of worship are losing membership just yes. dashly. So there's a decline there. So people are just kind of living little lives of on their own islands. And yep. so, yep. right. So how do you battle that as well? That's so quite, yeah, I, I really see that living lives of quiet desperation yeah, and in, in isolation, isolated. Right. So let me mention one other thing. You she brought up dads. Like, so I know this, this show is really aiming at dads at some higher level. This conversation, what we're really talking about is strategy. And I have found that dads love strategy. Right, it's part of the problem solving. Maybe it's a maybe it's gen- genetic. I don't know. Maybe it's social. Who knows? But when I talk to dads about, all right, let's imagine yourself as a head coach. What would a head coach do? And a head coach always thinks about strategy. They're always thinking three or four steps ahead. And so, for a dad who you know in our culture, dads have been beaten up for years. Mm-hmm. Um, dads are oftentimes out of the mix for a variety of reasons. But dads, you can be super strategic in this re-engagement of a child, they will need as many capable and competent dads or men around that child, whether they're a boy or a girl. And the best strategy, I would say, for a dad to re-engage around a place of high leverage is books. Hmm. Let me describe this. Please. Your dad that's estranged from your family. Or estranged from your wife, and and, the, and she's raising the kids. This is all. This is kind of the circumstance that I see a lot. Um, you be the book um, broker. You bring books to the house. You don't even have to talk to the wife if if you if your relationship is that tight or, or that troubled. You just bring books and flood the house with the written word. If you do get time with the child. Listen to an audiobook together or have the child read with you on their lap. This is basic stuff. We do not need to go to a baseball game. We do not need to go, I don't know, you know, ski trip or, you know, to the beach. Just sit in a library or on a couch and read a book. And that small activity, if you do it enough, it builds a shared language between the child and the parent, the dad in this case. It also builds a bond. And the relational bond is the key here. So you can go to a soccer game or baseball game and spend a bunch of money. You will have not nearly as much leverage as if you sat on a couch and read a book together and talked about it. I promise you, it'll be a far more heavy investment in the life of your child than anything else. And so that's one of the places where dads can re-engage because the importance of books cannot be under estimated the importance of reading the importance of of dialogue and having conversations in a shared language cannot be underestimated and dads that's a that's one of the basic places i would encourage dads to start man that is so it's so funny how you mentioned that because today so i work at a school my main role is dean of students but i'm also to the outdoor education director oh nice so today was our fifth grade uh trip but we were fishing in the bayou so Mm. uh, we were teaching our kids how to cast and set up bait and stuff like that. But anyway, one of my dad volunteers, as we were waiting for one of the fifth grade classes to come out to us in the forest, um, we were just talking and he goes, ever since my kid, uh, his his oldest is in fourth grade, his youngest is in first grade. Because ever since they were little, every night we read together. Um, mm. and we still do it. He goes, so with my boy, we read together and then he reads to us, we mm. read to him and then we Go into my daughter's room. We do the same thing. Um, I was like, wow. That's huge. That's a so, huge ritual. 
it's funny that you just mentioned that because I was like, it it struck me as neat but odd that you just kind of reinforced that. It's so simple, dude. It's so high leverage that it's 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 just crazy. It doesn't require anything but a couch and a book. And again, yeah, there's a little bit of effort to finding which books are of interest, but I promise you, once you get in the habit of sitting with the child, the child will read anything that you find interesting, period. You know, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan. Great book. He, he has a quote, um, in reading great literature, I become a thousand men and yet remain myself. Uh, mm. Here, as in worship and love and moral action and in knowing, I transcend myself and am never more my, myself than when I do. Wow. Right? Beautiful. Beautiful. It's Love beautiful. That. Yes. And just how powerful reading is. So I'm really actually oh, glad you brought that up. That's really cool. That's huge. So I want to get it back a little bit to, if, if you could be vulnerable, share, you said some of the mistakes that you made that now when you look back and you're working with families. Yeah. Is there anything you feel comfortable sharing that may sure. be a benefit to some parents out there? Absolutely. So this transition I talked about between being an authority, and again, I don't I don't hide that term. A lot of parents are uncomfortable with that term, but early on when the child is young, safety is really is is really the key. And so and and helping the child learn how to self-manage are are really important. So what I did though was I held that authority too long. I learned this the hard way, mm -hmm. I didn't begin to cede authority to the child early enough. Okay. I really kept the tiger mom, I don't know if you know that term, the tiger mom or tiger dad. I kept that as almost a badge of honor. I am in charge. You're going to do it as, as I say, because I know what's best for you. That was the exact language that I would use, you know, into my child's, you know, late elementary school. And at that moment, again, so I've gotten some coaching from other dads and moms who said, "Hey, Matt, this is where you're going with this deal." If you, you know. and again, part of this is that you know, as a black father, I was working under fear, and I was afraid for my son, and, and therefore I said, "No, you're going to follow the rules because you're not going to be like one of those out there that get caught up in the law or whatever." Right. So I was operating again. This is the work that I needed to do. Mm. I needed to recognize that my son was actually far more capable. Than I recognized. If I may, did somebody call yeah. that out in you or did you realize that? Were you self-aware enough to realize that? A lot of people called it out, but I stuck to my guns. I really did think that I was doing the right thing by insisting and requiring you know, obedience. The heart was in the right place. Every parent's heart is in the right place, okay. and, uh, but I wouldn't hear it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and what that led to was a child who really struggled later with self-leadership. And that's when it, you know, no one really talked to me about this issue of self-leadership being a really critical element. They really said, you know, stylistically being authoritative parent is not the best way to go. And I'm like, well, you know what style you could do one way, I'll do another way. I wasn't thinking strategically of what do I want this child to be? And what do I want the child to be is independent, self-leader, self-learner, uh. self-governing, autonomous actor. And the more that I then led and required his submission to my leadership, the more I actually stunted his ability oh. to self-lead, right? Uh -huh. So that's a place for me that was really clear. I now can see it clearly what was going on. But if if someone had said, hey, Matt, do you want him to self-lead? I would have said yes. So 
then someone could have said, okay, so given how you're acting right now, is it more or less likely that he's going to develop the musculature of self-leadership? And that may have turned on a light bulb for me. That may have caused me to go, oh, shoot, I'm disabling this kid. That may have helped. You know, okay. who knows? But um, that's that's the kind of language I talk to dads, though, when I hear about, and I see this in culturally, it's actually very interesting because in certain cultures, it is very authoritative, almost, you know, aggressive. And when I see that, that's the language I have conversations with parents about. What, let's be strategic. Where, where do you want this kid to be? And when do you want this kid to be uh, able to self-lead? And how is what you're doing you know, helping or hurting in that? And again, a lot of parents can start going, oh, I see what you're saying. Getting out of the habit is another conversation, which is also hard, but the awareness is the first piece. Well, two things come to mind because it's like, I could see with, with the work that you do, not only is it our, you're trying to empower the student to be ultimately independent, would you say self-leader? Self-leader, self-learner, self-governor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But while through that, it's kind of maybe exposing some things with the parents of like, by the way, uh, there's some work that you need to be doing in yourself to kind of let go a little bit because it's almost like you're kind of short-circuiting the system a little bit and stepping Absolutely. in. It's So again, I hate to use this analogy because I just actually use this. Uh, it's like with the butterfly in the cocoon. You know, if you come over and rescue it out of the cocoon, mm. it's actually going to die. Exactly. The, but, the, the, but the caterpillar needs that resistance. It needs yes. to fight to get out of that cocoon because it makes the wing stronger and it can actually sustain to live and be powerful and fly. But if parents are over there trying to help and help and help, well, or, or I guess in a weird way, if you're over there just being authoritative, authoritative, and you're not all giving some ownership to the child, they're not going to grow. They're not going to strengthen knowing, okay, they're going to fall on their face, but they're, they're going to have to learn, right? Right. Well, I was going to say fear is, the, again, a, a real powerful driver in a lot of these decisions. I've seen also a pattern that moms oftentimes, particularly with their boys, was just talking to a parent about this this morning. Yeah. Um, moms oftentimes will rush to save the boy from injury, mm. right? Will put a pillow under him before he falls kind of thing, metaphorically. Mm. And again, there's a place where moms and dads have to be very, very clear that, and we have some real hard conversations about this, does the boy need to get you know, a couple lumps on the head in order to learn. And if the answer to that is yes, then we've got to, we got to discipline ourselves, hold each other accountable, that we're going to at times strategically allow him to fail without telling him about what he should do differently, without, you know, without advising him, we're going to let him skin his knee metaphorically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to, we're going to come in and say, let's talk about this. How did this work? Yeah. What happened? What do you think could have happened to avoided this? I will say, you know, Ross, there's a whole conversation that we could get into and I'm happy to go there if you'd like around education and how oftentimes the traditional educational model actually does exactly what I'm describing. It, it can enable, enable a child to learn how to self-lead or self-learn because rarely does a child get asked the question, well, what do you want to learn today? Uh, and again, it depends on the school model, right? And some schools are more democratic in that regard. But if the child never gets to ask the question of themselves, what am I interested in? What are the things that I feel led on my heart to pursue and, and explore? And then how do I do that? Those are places where the child doesn't develop the musculature to go out into a world that's changing just radically fast, ridiculously fast, and be able to flex and adjust and learn their way through any sort of disruption. 
that to me is a is a critique on this on the traditional educational model. No, and, and feel free to go there. I mean, obviously, I'm in I'm in the world of education right now, and and so moving towards that project based learning, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. some guiding questions. Oh, yeah. my former school with the Reggio approach, where you know, with the little ones, it's like here's a picture of uh, of seals. Well, then let the kids, if they're interested in that, well, where do the seals come from? Where do the seals? Mm -hmm. What country? So you're kind of guiding the yes. students and allowing them to kind of open up or to overturn this rocket, overturn this rocket, see what it go. Right. I, I yep. because I'll say they're going to be more invested, but I think there's a fear. I see that with some of my, I'm not going <laughs> to, maybe I got to be careful what I say, but <laughs> yeah. some, some teachers of, of letting go because no, 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 no. We've got to teach this because right. you've got to, you've got to take the icy and you've got to get into St. John's and Kincaid. And yep. you've got to yep. do that. And then Harvard and yeah. yeah. Yes. As opposed to, will you let go? And, yeah. you know, that's why I try to do that with my outdoor ed of, and I'm going to be better at that. But like, where do you, yeah, where do you want to take this a little bit? And, mm -hmm. and be vulnerable as a parent should be vulnerable to some degree to say, I don't know the answers. So yep. let's figure it out together. Yeah. It's a difficult place for a teacher to be in because depending on the educational space that like you just described, you know, there are these tests that are lurking and those tests create a ton of anxiety on the part of the parent and the teacher for that matter and the child, right? So everybody's anxious about this test that's coming up. And so we got to get ready for the test. We got to get ready for the test, but we're not asking, I would argue a, a bigger question, which is, are we getting the child ready for life? And life is not a uh, open or closed book test. It is a daily problem solving dynamic every single day. It's problem solving with nobody looking over your shoulder, no grades awarded, you know, and and so just as I'm describing the reframe for a parent to think about, oh, I want my child to be a self-leader and a self-governing autonomous adult. That means I need to do things differently to make sure that they are learning how to do that. They're building the internal musculature to learn how to lead and self-lead. The well, same argument, I would say, is in the educational space, the tests oftentimes, diagnostic tests are great, but tests that are now entrance tests create a level of anxiety, which doesn't give the child a freedom to explore deeply an area of a personal interest for themselves because that might ruin their chances on that test. I mean, I think you know what I'm saying here. I do. I do. That even my, because my school finishes at fifth grade and, and we definitely see the anxiety even at that mm -hmm. level more again, because it's, again, I'm not trying to like nail on the parents, but it's like, you know, it's more of a, my kid's success or my kid's failure is going to be an indictment of who I am as a parent yes. and who I am. And that sticker on my car is yes. my identity versus yes. what my child was gifted with and allowing that child to be who they were created to be, taking my prejudices off. And if my child That's doesn't true. get in, and I've got some kids right now that still haven't found a home and they're just really wounded and the yeah. parents are wounded right and so it's just it's yeah no it, 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 it even in third and fourth grade you're kind of seeing a little bit of that tension. oh yeah they see you, it coming you see it in pre-k you see it with parents who have a two-year-old who's who are asking themselves am i on the right waiting list for the right pre-k school it is really a diabolical dynamic that creates anxiety all up and down the, the spectrum and again we have to also think strategically. Again, ask a dad to think about, okay, tell me 10 years from now, what is a child going to need to know? Right? What are the skills that child's going to need to have in order to 
to be effective in in in, a, in the world? The answer is nobody knows. Well, ten years around, you know, and my, my thing too, my prayer for my, you know, for my stepdaughter too. I mean, granted, she's got my heart is for her, of course, but also to my first my son. And I've said this to my wife. I go, if he's a straight C student and he's but he's trying his best, great. But what yeah. I want him to be is to love everybody that he encounters, that mm. he can look at you in the eye. He can ask you, hey, Mr. Barnes, how are you? You know, yep. and be able to have a conversation with you and kind of befriend all. That's yep. my prayer for him. And to have a certain sense of independence and to learn some, quote, blue collar traits because if all hell hits the fan, he can, yeah, I know how to do HVAC or I can weld or something, right? Yep. That's yeah, like, it's a skill that you will not lose and it's always going to be in demand and right, uh, right. not going to be, uh, you know, outsourced <laughs> to another yeah, country. And I'm okay yeah. with that. Right. Yeah. That's all I want. That to me is part of the element of self-leadership that they can stand on their own two feet. And again, I, I would argue that that, that sort of training can and should be happening in late middle school and in high school, definitely. So that by the time the child is 16, 17 years old, they actually have quality skills that matter. And if they want to, you know, move into that workspace, they could do so. And a similar point, we'll tell you, tell you about my own kid's journey and how some of this actually worked in practice. It worked ridiculously well and Please. very, very proud of my kids. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Just didn't want to extend this too much further. And no, got, no, no, I've no, got no. time. So my oldest, you know, I, I told you that I ended up, you know, pushing too hard on him too long. And I kind of learned my lesson and tried to back off that. So he was the valedictorian at his high school. And normally that should be cause for some celebration. But frankly, I actually was a little discouraged by it because for four years he was actually kind of bored. Yeah. But thankfully, this is so weird, like COVID was a great experience for our family because he had a bunch of time now on his schedule. He could learn anything and radically quickly. And so he did his homework for school and then taught himself the piano. And he is amazing on the piano. He loves it. He'll play it for hours. Yeah. Loves it. Loves it. And so I have a kid who academically killed it, but he found an area of passion. And that to me is more valuable than any grades he got. Yeah. That's an example. Yeah. But again, it had it required some space. My middle daughter, she went to uh, you know you know HSPVA High School for Visual and Performing Arts. I do I celebrated do. school here in Houston. Uh -huh. Straight A student for the first year, and then said she didn't want to go back because it required so much of her time seven and a half hours of school plus two hours of homework a night. She got straight A's, but this was just way more than what she thought was realistic, and she felt like she could learn on her own in her own way in a different place uh, mm -hmm. in a different model. And so she started taking classes at the University of St. Thomas. She started taking online coursework. She wrote a book. She published an author at 17. She decided <laughs> to forego college. She does not have a diploma. She does not have a degree. She's working full time at a marketing company with remote work as an 18 year old. She may go to college at some point, but here's the thing. I know for certain that whatever life throws at her, she's going to be able to pivot, mm. right? She's, she knows how to lead. She knows how to learn. She can use every tool of learning that's out there. She's just, I'm just not worried. And mm. it's such a freeing place to be as a parent. Now, she gets on my nerves sometimes, don't get me wrong, but, <laughs> but it's a freeing place to be when I'm like, gosh, at 18, I am perfectly comfortable. My kid knows how to handle herself 
and she's going to be fine. And my 17-year-old is exactly the same um, in some other ways. I mean, she's an artist and she's into, into poetry and into uh, flight and into leadership. You know, she's in this something called Civil Air Patrol and she's one of the leaders of this program. She has, you know, 450 people under her that she's managing. She loves it, loves it, loves it. She has found an area that she can excel. And when a kid finds an area that they are really excited about, they learn ridiculously fast Huge. and they become an expert that no one else can compete with. That mm -hmm. to me is the object of education. Mm -hmm. Find those places where the child is super excited and they become an expert ridiculously fast with no one looking over their shoulder. Uh, and when that happens, opportunities emerge, like jobs start to show up, businesses you know, fall into their laps. These are opportunities that just keep coming up for our kids. And I'm just loving it because this is what I hope all kids and all families will have access to in the future. Not necessarily just the one size college degree, Harvard, you know, bumper sticker, but a kid who actually loves to learn, has found some areas of in a real interest for themselves and who pursues it regardless of what the society says is a you know, valid credential, external credential. Mm -hmm. They have internal credentials. They know exactly who they are, where they're going, and how they want how they want to get there. That's a really great place to be as a parent. What an amazing story, and what an amazing testament to your kids, but also to to you and your wife to be able to like allow that and not to say no, you're going to college. Like that's because that's what you're supposed to do, and so you're kind of going against the tide, if you will. But right. again, if, if the goal is to make a self-governing human, then the more that I tell that child what to do, the less I am teaching them how to self-govern. And again, she might go to college. And I have no doubt if she decides she's going to go to college, she'll probably That'll be in her two decision. years. It'll be her decision. She may finish in two years. It'll be ridiculously you know, excellent. She, like, that, but if I'm pushing on her, college now becomes something that it's not an inspired decision. It is a, a default. And at the prices colleges are we're talking now, that's a really expensive default. You know, I can go on and on about this, but this is the, kind of the work I do. But um, ultimately, she is a leader of herself. And as a result, she found the apprenticeship to get to learn marketing. She found in you know the job. It's a well-paying job at at eighteen. She is on her way. And I don't have to worry about her. That is the piece that every parent doesn't usually think about when they're pushing on their child, when they're pushing on the child to get the A instead of the B, when they're pushing on the child to get, you know, a little bit, couple more scores on the, uh, whatever the standardized test is, that is not creating a child who's able to self-govern and self-lead and self-learn and, and in a world that's changing radically fast, if you don't have a child that's able to do that, they're going to get run over. Well, and you, you allow that, that, that fertile foundation for your children to thrive in that environment. You created that environment. So what, you know, and I'm like with a two-year-old, I mean, that's what I want. You know, what do you tell what schools are doing it right or any schools doing it right? Or how do I like for my son to put him in a position to allow him that? Cause I don't want him to get stuck in the, the, the puppy mill, if you will, or the. Yeah. So there's no perfect school. There's no perfect parent. <laughs> there's no perfect child. The best you can do is kind of navigate based on what you have available with, to you. And again, I all my work, I don't know if I told you this, Ross, all my work is free. I have Patreon supporters and we have financial cushion where I don't need to charge people. So if anybody wants to get help, 
they can go to my website or www.mattcbarnes.com and there's a whole process that we would begin. Choosing a school matters around, it, it's really decided on based on what's available logistically, like going across town every day to drop your kid off at the perfect school, super, super hard to, to manage the logistics. So it may not be a good fit, but whatever school the child is in, the parent will need to make adjustments in how they operate to make sure the child is learning these skills. And sometimes parents will say, you know, we're going to back out of the system entirely and do something very different. And so what I do is I walk alongside the parent and help them understand their full options because there are lots of options beyond public, private, and charter. And even if they're in one of those models, there's still things that the parent should probably be spooling up or spooling down based on what they're seeing in the child's development. So these are dynamic forces at play. And so it would be inappropriate for me to give a one-size-fits-all approach, sure. but certainly can walk through with with parents who are willing and interested in doing so. Well, on a side note too, it's like, where are the trade schools and where are, you yeah. know, should there not sure. be trade schools in elementary school or middle school? And, Absolutely. And, right? So at least you've got yeah. something to fall back on. And, you know, I know here in Houston, I think Mattress Max, there's the, maybe I want to say there's like a trade school for middle school or high schoolers out of Gallery Furniture. I think um, one of our, I think dads was kind of helping out with that. But I heard about that. I'm not sure if it's open, but I heard about something like that. But again, the fact that we're talking about one is proof that that we as a society have really lost that the idea that there's a whole bunch of paths to a stable yes. adult life. Hundred percent, a hundred percent. But and I think getting back to you know, even with my students, I think sometimes we don't. Maybe, maybe there's a little bit of a side note. I don't think we give our students enough respect or honor them because mm -hmm. I feel like even with my kindergartners for my outdoor ed, there's a book out there called Hatchet. I don't know if you ever read Hatchet. Oh yeah. Loved it. Yep. So I, I kind of used that book as my template for this year's outdoor ed, but I scaled it from kinder, scaled it all the way up to fifth grade. Right. And so, mm -hmm. but even with my kindergarten teachers I go, oh, they're going to make a fire. Like they're going to learn how to build, make a fire. And so even my kindergarten teachers were like, you can just see in their eyes. I had two of them were like, let's do it. But one of them was like, oh, are you kidding me? Oh, but to burn see, themselves. Right? But if you empower them, yeah. they stepped up. They were careful, but their excitement was through the roof. Like you're, sure. you're actually letting us take a match and light it. I'm like, yes, you know? Yes. And I was, but, I, but the whole time too, to be honest, I was like, I was kind of freaking out. Like, oh my <laughs> gosh, this could go really south. But it was so fun because- yeah. I don't think anybody just really said or gives them credit. Um, they they were on task. I, I'm yep. just saying, like they stepped up, and I think sometimes we don't value these little souls that yeah. that were given. Well, um, again, this this Ross, this goes back to this expectation decline that we have over kids. So I had to intentionally think to myself, okay, 200 years ago, what would a seven year old be doing? Yeah, and a seven year old would get up, would handle all the early chores, would probably be fixing fences with the dad, would have a horse and ride a horse, mm -hmm. all these things that are inherently dangerous and require responsibility. Then I had to say to myself, okay, how do I, how do I apply that down to 21st century and what does that look like? And so as an example, I had my son cutting grass at age seven. My wife was like, no, you're not. I'm like, no, he can do it. I'm going to show him how, I'm going to make sure his ears protected, his eyes protected. I'm going to show him everything needs to happen. And we're going to do that. And he did it and loved it. Again, giving a child responsibility, they love it. They lean into it. And it's actually fun. 
And once it becomes fun, then you can say, okay, this is your new job. And then it'll slowly become work, but it's too late at that point. They're still cutting the grass. Yeah, that's so cool, though. And I'm glad you brought that up because I've never. How do you trick the system? I guess to some degree, um, I never thought about that. Like looking back to to your point, looking back 200 years ago, and how do you modernize that today? Because that's, that's something honestly right. I may do. I want you know. I'm not saying that you or if there's a template out there that we could share to our listeners, but I wonder if there's almost like here are some 2023 things you can do with your children that kind of mimic some of that stuff. I don't, that's a great idea. I've not seen anything like that, but I'll get started trying to build it. That's a great idea. Well, I'm just saying, so that way parents could go, okay, well back to, back to 200 years ago, they were doing what you just said. So how do we trick the system? And like your point, go out and cut the grass or you need chores, responsibilities. Like we all have a part to play in the family. Yeah. Go over there. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you for that. That's really, really cool. But so getting back a little bit, you know, Matt, to to you as a father and and to the fathers out there, what would you say that your greatest challenge as a dad is? So I'll right now, you know, I've got a 20 year old and 18 year old who's working full time uh, and the 17 year old who is, you know, found several areas that are, don't seem to be connected. Again, poetry, acting, flight leadership, military leadership. The hard part for me as a dad is the same challenge I had when they were, you know, 10 and 13 is stepping back, letting them go, knowing that I have done what I can to help them learn how to lead. And now they should come to me if they have questions, not me coming in to swoop in to solve problems. Super, super hard to do because I see them making errors, financial errors, uh, other errors, and it's super hard for me to keep my mouth shut. But and it, you know, and I oftentimes fail. But ultimately, they have to learn lessons, and sometimes those lessons have a few too many zeros on the end of them. But the lesson that once learned, boy, I might tell you what, it's a lot easier to learn the lesson when you get cracked on the head once or twice than for me to kind of keep harping on somebody. So yeah, so they've made this, they've made some decisions that I think are not great decisions, but they're in the range of reasonableness, and mm-hmm. it's not the decisions that I would have made. And, and I need to, uh, you know, let go of that. And gotcha. that's been hard. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I had a dad, one of my, actually one of my guests in, in a previous episode of just yeah, when do you step in? When do you not? When do you not? And when Hard. when can they kind of own something on their own? For he was making an example of like their of of his faith, you know. Mm-hmm. And I want my child to own it on their own, not because of me and me forcing it. And he, they, yeah. it's something that they need to they need to own. Yeah. Well, and again, I I think that's even more important that that those conversations are happening early. So by thirteen, there's kind of a a pattern that's already been set, um, mm-hmm. a, a pattern of thought and a worldview that's that's established. After 13, it does get increasingly difficult to shape the child, no doubt. Because there's so many voices and, and there's the, the society pulling at them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think also just biologically, they're they're ready to true. kind of start leading themselves. And, mm-hmm. you know, forever, that's what, you know, young teenagers did. They led themselves. They had all sorts of leadership, you know, embedded into them early and by 17, they had their household and families and et cetera. So, well, and there's yeah. so many notes that I'm writing. This, this conversation has been so valuable to me and I can't thank you enough. And one of the things that sounds like too, is really even I'll say my specific personal case is with the two-year-olds is to live a life and parenting intentionally. 
parenting mm. with a long-term goal and work strategic backwards. But what would you tell your dad now, now that you're a father? Yeah. I, the, the answer is simple. Dad, you weren't a perfect dad, but I thank you for everything you've done. Uh. And I honor you as a dad who did your very best. And I'm trying to honor that also by doing my very best with my kids as to the degree I can. So mm. thank you. That's that's all a dad ever really wants. Mm. Just to just deep gratitude and appreciation for the challenge of being a dad and a, a and a mom for that matter. So yeah, that's the only thing I would say to my dad right now. Is he still with us? He is. He is. Yeah, I'll Did see him you, tomorrow probably. And you've told him that he knows that he is. But I, I ha- yes, I have. I I can't tell him enough. So I'll do it tomorrow. I'll thank you for the reminder. There you go. What would you tell yourself when you had your first child? Mm, if I could go back and, and advise that guy? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a great question. So many things come to mind. I'm going to need to ponder that. I mean, the thing that the two things that come to mind first up were you know, hug your child every day, mm. right? That's just, mm. that's one of those basics. Another one is to read with your child every day. Just something. Read yeah. something. You know, one other piece is no fear. Yeah. No fear. I yeah, that's definitely one of the things I would would have communicated because fear was really driving so much of my early years with my kids, and fear causes people to act really screwy. I mean, you mm-hmm. probably know this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would have would have definitely cautioned hardly or diff- you know assertively around fear. That's yeah. so good. That's so good. And and I would say um, what I love about this little side hustle thing for me on this podcast, even if I have an audience of two my parents. Um, it's okay. It's hey, okay. Hey, parents. I don't care. I don't care. So I love just leveraging this to get to talk to people and hearing their stories. And and so for you, but the reading thing, but so many dads have said already that time flies, you know, oh my goodness. And like you blink and you have a settled year old, you blink. And, and so it's like, just, I wish I could go back and spend more quality time or yep. I would have given up my weekend hobby of golfing or Planning or whatever, and just mm-hmm. sacrifice a little bit more just to be present with my kids and just yeah. being just being present, you know. So the when you said hugging, you know, that's kind of what stirred up in my mind as well because mm. it does it does fly by. It does. And Matt, what would you uh, again with what you're seeing? You really are um, obviously in the trenches with families, and I'll see in the whole world of education. What do you see is maybe some of the biggest challenges or the biggest challenge for dads? Yeah, today. Yeah, there's it's twofold. Tech, tech is the number one threat to a family, and to be more specific about that, the ability for algorithms and bad actors to communicate directly to your child and to shape their worldview. That is, that's never, it's never been possible in all of humanity. And now it is almost normal. That is a very dangerous dynamic. And I could, I've done a ton of research on that space. The, The second threat is really around time. Parents are chasing financial dreams at the expense of their kids oftentimes. So, you know, a family that could live on one income and, or, or maybe both parents working, you know, a less intensive job creates a ton of space for the family to connect and to heal 
and to learn and to love. But I've seen way too many, way too many families who are going 100 miles an hour and the child is just on their own. And those kids oftentimes turn into basket cases. We've got to fight the culture of hustle and grind and to slow the pace. And dads, to the degree you have a ability to do that, either through your job or through you know, reducing of other commitments, whether that's, you know, golfing with your buddies or whatever it may be. We've got to push hard on a culture that says you can do it all because you can't. You do what's the priority and you say no to the other things. And for a season of your life, that child is going to be your priority. Like it or not, you brought him into the world, you got to now own it. So that's, those are the two threats, tech and time. That's so good. You know, I know with the, with a lot of the, the families that I encounter, well to do, mm. but a lot of alone children, whether it's, you know, nannies or, yeah, you know, so even if you're making it, um, I still see a lot of hurt. I still see a lot of loneliness with children. Um, and sometimes I see it parents overcompensating. Maybe they, they're guilty. So if something happens with their child, you kind of get an extreme reaction. Because it's like, well, we got to kind of step in and out fight because we kind of feel guilty that we're not really present with our, our yep. children, right? Yep. Um, so that's so key. And, and, and please, you know, after we finish our conversations and if you want to email me any articles or links that I can link uh, listeners to your articles about tech, um, we did, I did interview a professor at Baylor who has written several books, hundreds of articles about social media, fubbing and just all this stuff because he is dealing with college kids every single day um, yeah. and kind of what he's seeing out there. But, you know, with that tech, you know, it's how do you empower parents to be so proactive, you know, in, in guarding their children when it's so evasive? Super hard, but it you requires know? a significant amount of, of, of intentionality. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So Matt, what, um, what am I, what haven't I asked that you wish I asked or something that you want to maybe just tell the audience? Cause I know there's so much depth. Yeah. Two things. One, I, I mean, it's not really a question. It's just kind of a reflection. One is that all kids are now on the 100 year degree plan. The 100 year degree plan is means that they're always going to be learning from this point on. There is never a moment, a time when we just kind of hang out and coast. Mm. And again, if learning is fun, that's okay. If learning is a drudgery, that's a problem. So that's the first one. The second one is that the tools for learning have never been more abundant, but the desire to learn is scarce now. Mm. And I see this in our young people a ton. You might see it in your, in your school, maybe it's in other schools, but if these tools are so available and our kids are preferring to do anything but learn, then that means that they're wasting this huge opportunity that, again, humanity has never seen before, an opportunity for people to learn about anything at any time in a variety of different ways. Um, so my argument is the most important thing that for a young person is the desire to learn. So on my LinkedIn page, you see it says 90% of our education is 90% parent mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. behavior, and then... Uh, learning is 100% student's desire. If we supported the child's desire to learn, then we can step away because he's going to now pursue it himself. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm getting at there. I gotcha. And what I love about on your LinkedIn, when it says about you, you know, my work is simple. I replace parental anxiety with hope and a plan. 
And so I can't think of a better calling, if you will, in life than what you're doing to uh, hope and a plan and, yeah, and how many people you are just walking along. You know, I say this to discipline or to discipline somebody to disciple, to lead. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and you are, that sounds like to so many. So thank you. And on the word honor, it's an honor to, to know you, Matt, an honor to even get a little bit of uh, some time with you. Just looking at your live videos and your presence, um, you're a very intimidating man. I just, just even the little bit that I know of you, just looking on your profile and stuff like that, it's just, I can already tell you are somebody that I could learn a lot from. And thank you for not even knowing me and taking a risk and and, and spending time with me. Um, and my hope and prayer, like I said, before we jumped on this, is that if through our conversation, one mom or one dad out there feels uh, some encouragement that they're not alone, uh, that yeah. they may reach out to you through your website to seek some guidance. I will definitely be talking about my wife. To it's it's what I do, and it's in circle it's, with you. Yeah, it's what I do, and it's a uh, it is a mission of sorts for me. So I help work with anybody who is is willing to hear my views and um, and mm -hmm. to kind of wrestle with them. And so love happy to help anybody that wants to reach out. It's all free. I love it. I love it. Well, Matt, again, thank you so much for being an amazing guest on Bear my Crawls. Pleasure. It is, pleasure. Uh, and I hope, seriously, I'm not just saying this, but I would love to over the summer, you know, when my hours loosen a little bit, um, if you ever yeah. want to go grab some barbecue or something. It, yeah, let's just grab a beer or a coffee or something. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It'd be, be fun to, to meet you in person and love to have you come over and walk our campus um, as well. Um, yeah. Too. Would love so, that. Just know that. But Matt, again, thank you uh, on this evening. And I hope you have a great rest of the week and in, in, uh, in all that you're doing. Pleasure. Pleasure. Take care of yourself. Good talk. Awesome. Hey, you too. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. We hope you enjoy this latest episode of Bear Crawl with Dads. From our brother C.S. Lewis, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending.